0: Each week, host Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of A Midlife Challenge Wake Up, will discuss the challenges common to middle age and help guide you to a brighter tomorrow. Now, here's Roy. Well, hello and welcome to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. And today we're going to talk about another common challenge of middle age the safety and welfare of our aging parents. In addition to raising our kids and adolescents, Many of us feel responsible for keeping tabs on mom and dad or perhaps on another aging relative to ensure they're okay as time takes its toll on their minds and bodies. And as all of you know, most elderly folks are pretty set in their ways, and they don't really change. And a recent AARP survey showed that 90% of seniors, whatever that term seniors means, (laughs) want to spend their golden years in their present homes and why not aging in place has proven psychological benefits because it allows mom and dad to remain socially active in their present church and community and maintain established relationships and it also saves in a big way on finances because the average assisted living facility costs almost eight fifty thousand dollars a year uh, but for many folks in their late 70s and 80s, aging in place can become risky, if not downright problematic. And how about you? Are you facing this dilemma? Your elderly parents tell me tell you in no way they are moving out of their present place of residence, and they have always been fiercely independent, making their own decisions, and they have a re- re- intent to remain so, and you sense a decline either in their home upkeep or in their self-care. More and more your parents are forgetting about engagements, neglecting responsibilities, or struggling to perform routine functions. And of course uh, you want what's best for your aging parents, but you're facing three dilemmas. How best can you evaluate just how serious the problem has become? And uh, once you determine if something needs to be done right uh, away, how do you have that talk, that moment when you sit down to convince mom and dad Uh, to make major transitions or uh, change their lives in some way. And thirdly, can you and your parents find a happy middle ground so that uh, best case they can stay in their present house? And to help us confront these uh, three parental aging dilemmas, I've invited senior health and wellness expert Linda Schrager, And, heck, Linda's suggestions for home modifications may not apply just to mom and dad. None of us is getting any younger. And those of you in your mid to late 50s or early 60s may wish to begin thinking about some home modifications you might make in your own home. But whatever your age, if you're like me, your home could stand some serious decluttering right now. And Linda Schrager has practiced uh, in the medical field of geriatric rehabilitation for over 37 years, focusing on all aspects of senior health and wellness she combines her expertise as a board certified occupational therapist a master's level social worker a professional organizer and a certified aging in place specialist she's been working with seniors in their homes for more than 13 years and she's author of a brand new book uh, just released this very month age in place a guide to Modifying, Organizing, and Decluttering Mom and Dad's Home. And hello, Linda Schreger. It's great to have you here on this most timely subject.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Roy.
0: Well, let's say a listener is concerned about how well her 76-year-old parents are getting along in their large 50-year-old two-story home. What's a good first step to discover if residential or lifestyle changes are needed? How do you get started in that? Well,
1: I like how you painted that picture with the age and even the age of the house. (laughs) Um, You know, the problem is exactly what you just said. How do we know... If mom and dad need help. Yeah. So what I suggest is that we put on what I call our inner Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and you need to go over to their house and really spend some time there. Yeah. Because the best way to see if there's a problem is to really do a walkthrough of the house with your parents alongside so that you can look around and see what's going on. And you want to look for a pattern of problems or a pattern of neglect over time that may kind of raise a red flag that there there could be a problem. And this is that
0: walkthrough. I'd like to stay there for a couple days and just observe my parents going through their daily activities and you know what they trip on and the other things that they might encounter, I think that'd be a good idea also if you can afford exactly.
1: it. Exactly, that's right. So, you know, if they'll have you for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. but Mr. Y-
0: Don't smell y- until after three days.
1: Supposedly. There you go. There's your first <laughs> problem. But, you know, you're absolutely right because you want it to be kind of a natural thing. It's not like yeah. you're, you know, doing an examination of yeah, them, you don't but, say, but you want to see. An inspection. <laughs> right, you, and you don't want them to feel that way, no. but you do want to see yeah. you know, how do they do in the kitchen? Are they still cooking their favorite foods. Is the pantry full? Does it have fresh food in it? Or are you noticing a lot of frozen foods in the freezer? A lot of my patients do that. They have trouble making um, fresh meals, so they pop something into the microwave. You take, you know, look at the pots and pans. Do they seem burned? Is there food kind of stuck on there? Um, You know, it might show you just as an example that they're having some difficulty in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, even worse than the freezer if there's a. Uh... Old food left out and <laughs> it doesn't smell very good.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And um, you know, as far as like personal hygiene kind of things, yeah. you might notice if there's uh, any body over odor. Maybe they're actually this is very common that they have trouble getting in and out of the shower. Oh, now yeah. that makes sense because the shower and the bathroom is where most falls occur. Yeah. You know, you're combining water and slippery floors.
2: Yeah, that's for
1: sure. So they stop showering and what do they do they take a sponge bath now that's okay and many many of my patients decide they're going to just take a sponge bath and as long as they can do that thoroughly and safely it's okay but that's something to sort of explore with mom and dad how do you feel about getting in and out of the tub or shower because there's a ton of modifications that we can do to make that safe and easier
0: yeah, we'll get involved in that a little later. But uh, also, I noticed you mentioned uh, outdoors. There's a lot of things you should observe as well, and including, you know, how steep the uh, lawn might be for a mower, whether your dad's still up mowing the exactly.
1: lawn. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, there's like divots. There's sort of like dips and holes that can, that can happen in the grass um there there as you said there's there's hills that need to be negotiated if the person is mowing or doing gardening
0: there's activities. Sidewalks where one thing sticks where one panel sticks way up over the other at the trip hazard I've <laughs> seen that right. a lot of times. Right, the driveway
1: driveway and the sidewalk can become old and cracked and, and, um, you know, have stones or have hazardous items that are just sitting there in the way. And so when I look at a person, when I do this evaluation and I do this – I, I go into people's homes and do these assessments for them. Yeah. I'm hired usually by the boomer kid yeah. who wants me to go in and look at mom and dad. So yeah. I start right out, like you mentioned, in the driveway. Yeah. You know, right outside. We go around the outside of the house. And I'll tell you, um, Roy, I see a lot of people who have trouble literally getting into the house.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, well, the I, front. I've
0: seen a lot of. Uh front porches that are very dangerous especially for an older person have real steep steps and don't don't have proper railings uh,
1: that's exactly right That's, that's often the problem that they don't have the right kind of railing the step may have been You know, built a long time ago where the grade is a little too high, the step height is too high, and people have trouble getting to the front door. And the people with garages, um, many times if it's an attached garage, there's a couple of steps leading from the floor of the garage up into usually the kitchen, but whatever room we're talking about. And again... There's never a railing there, no that's,
0: my wife comments on that all the time that we don't have a railing on the steps into our garage, and it's not a problem now, but I could see where it uh you be have a that problem. in your
1: own situation now, yeah. <laughs> yep, and that's a perfect example. It's very easy to have someone to pop up one of those railings. But usually if you think about it, you're getting out of your car and you're carrying something. It's your briefcase, your groceries, groceries, you know, whatever packages you're bringing in. So it's really good to have that railing. I've seen many people who have fallen, and it's only one or two steps. So you're thinking, oh, what do we need a railing for one or two steps, (laughs) right? But you do. It it makes a difference. You you realize (laughs)
0: it. Well, let's talk about a common problem, especially in older homes where our parents or maybe ourselves have lived for many years, and I understand how excess clutter can make a home less attractive to live in, Uh, but when does clutter become a safety issue? You mentioned that in your book and have a number of uh, sections on decluttering. When does that become a safety risk?
1: Well, you know, first of all, clutter itself, can if it piles up long enough whatever the clutter is it can become very dusty and dirty literally so right there, you have a breathing problem because yeah, you I have hadn't a – I
0: thought of that. That's you know,
1: I mean, thing. if you have – because you got to figure clutter is something that you haven't moved in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anything that hasn't moved in a long time is going to start um, to get a little dusty. Yeah. And, and, and so also, though, what I've seen um, is that people will tend to um, – pile up some things and it becomes an issue where it's in their way yeah. so if they're going from the living room to the den or to the kitchen and there's all of these items or books or a, a little ottoman or yeah. a chair or something that's now in the way of their path then we're really talking an unsafe situation
0: especially if mom and dad still have a landline and they're rushing to answer the phone and have to climb over a bunch of clutter or something, that could be a real hazard, I would say. Let me
1: tell you that Every single time I have a patient, when I do the safety talk with them, I always say this is such an important thing, and I'm so glad you brought it up because no one has yet, running to answer the phone. And you're so right, especially that age group for some reason. You know, the younger kids have their cell phone right in their pocket, so they never run anywhere. But the older people who don't, they have this thing in their head. They have to answer the phone. And I say no one is that important. No one is important. Important enough to risk a fall? Let it ring. You probably have an answering machine. Yeah. You'll hear who it is, and if you don't, guess what? They'll call you back <laughs> yeah. if it's important. important. Because Maybe nowadays
0: you don't want to hear from exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. So, but you are right. I can't tell you how many people I've had um, who had a fall because they were trying to get to the phone.
0: Well, give us uh, a, a co- few uh, excess clutter rules. You had some. I, I like some of the rules you had in your book, like use the in-out rule. <laughs> tell us about. Well, that in a couple, yes, or?
1: okay, so what is the in-out rule? So when I'm helping people to start to declutter, um, we look at some, what they have, and we try to go through to see what we can get rid of. Yeah. The in-out rule is simply for every object that comes in, an <laughs> equal one should go out. I love so if you So if you go to the store and you get a couple of books, um, you get rid of some old books. Yeah. I was just with someone, actually, it was a young person, and she was having a shower, um, a bridal shower and she got these beautiful wine glasses and i was so proud of her she stood up there and said well i'm a declutterer so i'm i have some old wine glasses and i'm going to give them to some friends because income are coming the new
0: wine glasses so it doesn't even even matter your age if you have something worthwhile you're giving away rather than just putting it in the trash it's it's a win-win on both sides
1: Exactly, exactly. So, you know, when you're going to start to declutter, um, I tell people to go to a room where they frequent a lot because yeah. when, they do, when they finish the job, they'll get a lot of good visual feedback. You know, they'll walk into the room and say, oh, this looks good. I'm going to keep doing this. So don't declutter, you know, the back closet that you're never in. But start with a room that you're in a lot. And the key to it is to break it up into little time frames yeah. because it's overwhelming. Even if you think now, oh, my gosh, my whole house is so cluttered, I'm so overwhelmed, so what do you do? You don't start at all. But if you say, I'm going to pick a room, I'm going to pick the den, for example, and I'm going to work in that room for two straight hours without stopping just the den, and you'll see that if you focus like that, you can actually get the task accomplished.
0: Yeah, and then you feel really good about it. uh, You
1: do, and then you'll go back in the den uh, your next time that you've scheduled, and you'll finish it off. So it's a good way to break up the task into small pieces. Don't think of your whole house as needing to be decluttered or else you'll never start.
0: Well, here's a a tough one. How do you uh, you know it's it's easy enough to look at your parents house and say this needs to go this needs to go but how the heck do you you get them to cooperate so that it doesn't feel like you're forcing something on them that they want to declutter maybe it's something they've had for 25 years or some real you relevant.
1: know you're right um and and that is really it is kind of a hard thing and what I find is, well, first of all, you want to work cooperatively with mom and yeah, dad. Yeah, um, sure. You don't want to lose your patience. They always deserve respect. Yeah. Um, you want to agree to the fact that, yes, there are some things that maybe you should look at to see if they still need to live in the house. Yeah. And I find that you get pushback from them um, yeah. when it's something that they're really attached to. Hmm. So you want to sort of explore the issue, the nature of the attachment to that object. Yeah. That's often the hard part. So you say, you know, Mom, what is the meaning behind this object? I mean, you've had this piece of china for 100 years, yeah. but there must be something behind it. Why is it so special to you? <laughs> and after, often you'll find that after they tell you the story, and you're kind of, it with them, that might get them to realize that it's the memory yeah. behind the object and not the object itself. Yeah, I like
0: that idea of taking That's a photo so important. or a videotape of something cherished and then uh, exactly. you throw the item out or give it right.
1: away. So, you know, yeah. often you'll see, Mom, they have like collections, yeah. you know, a collection of the little china cup and saucer or... Yeah. A collection of grandpa's tools, yeah. you know, tons of them. So when you go through, and you hear about grandpa and you hear about grandma's uh, tea set, and you can, then you can. It seems like once they've talked about it and understand it, they then have that ability to give it away. But you're right. Take a picture. They have all those ways now that you can go online and make photo books of things, and um, you can have a photo book of the entire tool collection, Hmm. and then you have that as your memory, but you don't literally need the tools in your house. You're
0: not going to use those (laughs) antiquated tools. That would be correct. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about a couple of high-traffic areas in our parents' houses where a lot of accidents occur. How about the kitchen? Can you give a couple of the biggest kitchen hazards, maybe along with a recommendation to uh, help better organize the kitchen or to eliminate those hazards?
1: Um, Well, you know, of course, the kitchen, as you know, is where the cooking occurs. Yeah. So... What I find that many of my patients have problems, clients have problems with, is transporting the food. For example, they go to the microwave and they put in a a thing of soup, and then they go to take it out. Now we're talking a big hot bowl of soup. So (laughs) what I recommend is that there's a... I call it a landing area, somewhere right under, often the microwaves are hung, you know, they're hung up, and so they're high. So a shelf or a counter space right next to or under the microwave, so they take it out with both hands, and they place it on that counter or a shelf. I actually had a woman build a shelf under her microwave oh, for the landing area. That's a, yeah, and, that's a great idea. You know what I mean? And then she puts the bowl there and then gets her balance, takes a breath, picks up the bowl with two hands, and then takes the bowl where she wants to go. Yeah. So the hot liquids is one thing. Yeah. Of course, you want a easy-to-maintain slip-resistant flooring. Oh, Yeah. You know, because first of all, all the food and things, you know, things fall on the floor, especially in the kitchen. So when it's wet, um, tile, marble, they can be very slippery. But they make tons of products now, you know, tons of types of flooring that are slip resistant. So that's something really to keep in mind and and i have a i find that i have people who as they get older they have visual deficits and it's actually hard for them to touch the right knob on the stove or the microwave um to you know because sometimes those the high medium low settings yeah. are written are a tiny little number, yeah. so I use something called bump dots, and they can be purchased online they can be purchased if, if anyone is near an association for the blind, they sell them, but they can be found online and they' are a little tiny sticky back plastic clear. Bump, like a little round bump is the best way to describe it. And I peel that off and I stick it on, let's say the pe- the person likes to use medium setting most of the time. Yeah. I put the bump on where the little M is for medium oh. and they can feel it yeah. and they can find right the, the correct setting. Or I put a bump on off
0: yeah. so and they know they've
1: a, turned it off.
0: Isn't that amazing how some little inexpensive... Uh, do that or something like that can make a big difference in uh, the ease of uh, cooking or whatever they're doing there and enhance the safety as well. That's really a great idea.
1: You're exactly right. Well, let's
0: turn to the room we already talked about where the most dangerous for elderly residents, the master bathroom, most obviously the tub and shower, maybe even the sink and toilet. Are there a couple of suggestions of how to make the uh, bathroom safer? I know they keep talking about these uh, walk-in Tubs and shower, or tubs especially. Are those a good idea, or what are some of the other things that uh, we should well, do? If, if-
1: you know what? I guess it depends on how much money we want to spend.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> little
1: uh,
2: penny. <laughs> yeah.
1: So are is a walk-in shower? Yeah, they're wonderful. So what they do is there's a lot of companies these days. They come in. Let's say you have the old-fashioned bathtub. They yeah. pull out the bathtub, they, and they say they can do this in one day. They've yeah. actually seen it, and they really can. Oh. Within one to two days, this whole project can be finished. They pull out the tub, and then they put in this no-threshold Shower, and it's very nice. It has built-in, you know, shelving for your stuff, and um, but but the problem is is that well the real problem is it's expensive. Um, (laughs) It can be six, seven, eleven thousand dollars to do that. So that's a little bit pricey. But we there are so many things that can be done inexpensively. So the first thing is if we're talking about the tub or the shower, grab bars. That is the number one. Thing that I suggest to people no matter what. Yeah, grab bars, grab bars, grab bars. Because they make all the difference in the world. If they are put in in the right spot, the person, whether they have to step over the wall of yeah. a tub or if they're just stepping into a shower... They can hold on to something. And let me just point out that if someone does a grab bar install, and it's very inexpensive. The grab bar itself is like 30 bucks. so you just find someone who will put it in for you. But you want to make sure that the grab bar has a rough edge to it, not oh a smooth edge. Like if you go into a bathroom in a restaurant, let's yeah. say, you'll see the grab bar and they're just a shiny um, Surface, But you want one that has a texture to it, and that's made specifically for a shower or tub, because if it gets wet, you have a better grip. So I recommend that type of grab bar to people. And, um, you know, as I said, that makes all the difference in the world. There are many different seats that you can get to put in the shower or tub. That would be the kind of thing that as an occupational therapist I would go in and look at the person and make recommendations yeah. uh depending on their needs. But there's a type that go and sit in the tub itself so all four legs are in there yeah. and that means you still have to step over the wall. Yeah. Or there's something called a transfer bench where two legs are out and two legs are in, mm. so you can actually sit outside the tub and oh, slide great. your butt in and then lift, bring your legs over so you don't have to step over, which yeah, is I a like big that. safety thing. Yeah. Well, so uh, that's a a good product.
0: Yeah, un- unfortunately we're running out of time, but uh, let's say that your elderly parent's home recently passed a home safety inspection and everything's satisfactory, maybe you've made some of the modifications, Uh, you suggest, or others, but uh, you and your siblings, the problem is you live far away. How do you avoid the trap of complacency? Any suggestions on how we can monitor our parents' status and uh, hopefully establish a a long-distance caregiving-type connection from afar to make sure that uh, everything is not changing for the worse or your parents' conditions aren't changing? How, How do you... Are there any organizations you can contact, or how do you do that?
1: Well, that's a great question, and you're right. That situation arises a lot. Mom and Dad are in Florida. The kids are up north, you know, that kind of thing. So, yes, there are. First of all, though, you know who some of the best people to rely on are the neighbors. Hopefully, now remember, they've lived there a long time because they're aging in place, so they probably have some relationship with their local neighbors. That's a great person. Get their phone number. Ask them, do me a favor. Go by Mom and Dad's house. House, check in on them once in a while, maybe help take the trash in or something yeah. like that so you can get a look. So the local neighbors is a good first um, group to depend on. Yeah. Also their church or synagogue, yeah. their faith community, if they have one, yeah. often will have a group that literally does this, that they check on their elders and their people who are homebound and, and they make that um, a responsibility. So that is is a great group um, yeah. of local people then anywhere they live they will, they you will have an area office on aging yeah. and if if you can just if the if the um, kid can look that up and find out the one closest to mom and dad. Oh, they will then set you up with many, many different um, kinds of resources. For example, Meals on Wheels yeah. who might deliver um, some home health aids yeah. that you can hire privately to be in the home to, to check on them and to do help them with some of their self-care. Where, where would
0: I go online, like uh, Google something, what, uh...
1: If you go to if you go online and just put in let's say they're in Iowa,
2: yeah.
1: um, office of area office on aging dash Iowa, oh. and you will come up with a lot of things. Yeah. If you want to go to a national website, eldercare dot gov, oh. eldercare dot gov, and that will then bring you to all of the local. Um, area, you know, aging resources, and I think what you do is you just put in the person's zip code, and up will come, um, you know, a lot of that kind of uh, those organizations.
0: Well, let's talk briefly about your brand-new book, Age in Place. What inspired you to write this book as a guide to modifying, organizing, and decluttering mom and dad's house?
1: Well, as you mentioned, um, I have been well. I've been in the field of working with geriatrics for thirty-seven years. Oh and the past 13 i've done home care so as i as i say it i've been in the trenches of home care yeah. and my situation is i'm i'm called in as a therapist into their home after they've had something some reason to be in the hospital yeah. usually or yeah. they've had a decline in function yeah. so i'm in everybody's house all day long and i've seen it i've seen the situations i've seen the problems with the kids and the parents and i but what i get nine 99% of the time is, I want to stay here. Yeah. So I've been doing this for years, and I realized that if there could be some kind of a tool, such as this book, to guide people on how to what to look for and then how to make a plan to keep mom and dad home, uh, that would be a great resource for people. Oh, so that's, that's what drove me to write the book.
0: Well, that's great. And, uh well, and uh, where would we go uh, to preview and purchase your book? Well, I know it's brand new on the market. Where's it the
1: is, book? it is. You are fresh off the press, Roy. Yeah. It just was, it just came out last week. Yeah. So um, let me mention that my website, which is otherwisehealthy.com, dot com, has all of this information that we've talked about today, and has the links to where to get the book.
0: Okay. And also, I have otherwise a Facebook Healthy. dot com.
1: Yes, otherwise healthy. Okay. And my Facebook page is called The Organized Caregiver, and many people are on Facebook, and if you go to that page, it has a lot of information. But this book can be purchased uh, through Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and in many local bookstores.
0: Oh, that's great. I'm sure that uh, we can find it. But, uh, well, to conclude, as my guest Linda Schrager advises, for most seniors, aging in place during their senior years can provide mom and dad, and in not too many years, maybe ourselves, a number of psychological benefits, and it's something a vast majority of seniors really want to do, as Linda pointed out. On the other hand, we love our parents and don't want to learn of their parent problems and safety risks only after the fact, after a death or a debilitating injury or something else bad happens to mom or dad. And we want to ensure our parents' safety and welfare, but at the same time we want them to enjoy their golden years to the fullest extent possible. And the good news, as we've discussed today, it's so often as possible to modify our parents' home and to make only modest changes to their present behavior because mom and dad themselves recognize risks and want to change. That's the ideal situation. And uh, if any of you are facing the challenge of an elderly parent's independent living and they want to stay at home, I highly recommend you preview and purchase Linda Schrager's brand-new book, Age in Place. And uh, thank you so much, Linda, for joining us today. It's been most enlightening.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: Well, before we close today's program, let me ask you a question. Have you become infected with the entrepreneurial itch? You've got a great idea for a new business, and you're fairly certain you can introduce a product or service not presently available in your market. But as you see it, there's one huge problem. You're 45 or 50, far too old to get started as an entrepreneur. Well, guess again. I want to refer you to an article I came across written by university professor Carl Schramm in the uh, Wall Street Journal of uh, last February 10, 2018. According to, uh, as the article begins, we all know today's script for entrepreneurial success. A super bright college student, impatient with classwork, drops out to pursue his big idea. Think Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Venture capital funders chase after him or her, and he or she gathers smart pals uh, pals, to launch that startup. Then sensational growth soon follows for the company and riches for its founders, and the uh, youth-driven innovation economy notches up another great success. (laughs) But what if you've got the story wrong? According to uh, Professor Schram, the best information available on entrepreneurship in the U.S. suggests that our focus on youth is a mistake. According to the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans who are 35 or older are 50% more likely to start a business than are their younger counterparts. And a study in 2009 by the Kauffman Foundation showed that the average entrepreneur was 39 when starting a company. It also found that mid-career entrepreneurs were nearly five times more likely to have a going concern five years later than those starting a business right out of college. And one reason for the surveillance, I don't think uh, you need to tell us that because we're middle age. <laughs> Uh, but one reason for the prevalence of older entrepreneurs is that it takes some time for people to recognize that their destiny is to start a company, and their inspiration comes not from a college program, but from what they've learned on previous jobs. Uh, consider uh, Gary Burrell and Min Kao, who worked together at Allied Signal in the 1980s on military applications for satellite Geo positioning, and when the government approved the technology for civilian use, they saw the potential consumer market for GPS devices. We've all heard of those, and in 1989 they founded their own company, Garmin, and at that time they were respectively 52 and 40. And what car doesn't have GPS on it today, right? <laughs> Middle-aged entrepreneurs like you uh, don't just bring experience, they also are more capable of self-financing their startups. A recent study by the crowdfunding company Fundable shows that for most entrepreneurs, personal savings retirement accounts And home equity, assets that few 25-year-olds enjoy, provide their grub stake. And entrepreneurs in their 40s or even 50s also are generally free of student debt and are more likely to have a working spouse with health insurance. And those, of course, are factors that further reduce the risk associated with a new venture. So uh, how can uh, the account people help aspiring mid-career entrepreneurs? Well, according to Professor Schramm, university should offer continuing education in emerging technologies as well as non-credit courses in practical subjects such as computer programming. Duh. We could all use that, couldn't we? Advertising and industrial design. And uh, more could also... Uh, copy the co-op programs of a handful of engineering schools where students alternate between semesters on campus and working in companies and local business incubators should be restyled according to the professor uh, from hip communal working spaces for young people to office arrangements more suited to mid-career entrepreneurs and uh... Also, corporate America should do its part, too. Companies large and mid-sized should think of themselves as business incubators looking to their own employees for innovation worth investment, and some might even choose to support independent ventures. So just because you're 48 and uh, with a spouse and three kids, don't give up on that great, great idea. And uh, do adequate research, of course, don't just go off half-cocked. Uh, talk it over with your family, that's so important because they're going to be sacrificing along with you for the next couple of years, and you'll definitely need their emotional support, and uh, then prepare a family uh, budget, and in this case, you've got to think of the worst case scenarios, something that will get you through the next three to five startup years, whether you need to uh, take a second mortgage out on the house, uh, borrow maybe from your family, whatever you need to do, if you're really turned on by the idea, and it's not something that will uh, end you up in debtor's court for the next 50 years. And if your still, idea still looks doable after you work on this uh, family uh, interim budget, then go for it. Just like so many aspects of life, you may discover that middle age can be your best age to become an entrepreneur. And that's our program for today. Please don't forget to preview my two books on individual and business renewal, A Midlife Challenge Wake Up, Uh, That's my first book for individual renewal and wake up captain and crew for uh, restarting and uh, re-energizing your sagging enterprise or maybe starting it up from scratch. And uh, that's it for today. Talk to you again soon on middle age